May the words of my mouth and the meditation of all our hearts be always acceptable in your sight, God, our strength and our redeemer. Amen. Amen. John's Gospel paints for us a picture of the love of God, that love which is a dynamic thing, and always moving from place to place, always giving and receiving. And it's the icon that we have in our meditation room, that great icon of Anton Rublev is Andre Rublev, I mean, a great picture, if you like, of that love, that dynamic, that, that dance of love that we are called to be part of. John's full of um, that abiding, abiding in God and God abiding in us, and that invitation to be part of that movement, that life. Last week we had the image of the vine and the sap that moves through the branches from the vine and to the branches that we are, and that life that um, there's no beginning and ending of. Today's Gospel paints a picture of the love that Jesus has for us as his friends. On the night before he died, with all the enormity of what was coming looming ahead, Jesus reminded his disciples that he had chosen them and, and was, had committed himself to them. Then he asked them to love in that same way, choosing to love and being committed to love. So Jesus loves us, and not only does he love us, drawing us close to his heart, but he trusts us to be icons of that same love for others. So guess what I'm going to talk about? Most <laughs> you know me. And I, I, I have a lot of icons, and I share that love with Peter. And in fact, Peter lent me a book once, and here it is. So let me tell you about icons. Iconography is an ancient tradition in the church. The word icon literally means a Greek image or resemblance. So an icon, one like the one that's hanging on the pulpit, or the one that's hanging in the meditation room, or the ones that are in this book, or the one that is on the little card that some of you got when you arrived, are images or resemblances of the life of God. Now you might think they look like the resemblance of a person or some people, but really those images are just channels for the resemblance of God. The first, the earliest icons seem to be from around about the third century, so it is a very ancient art form. And the church at first struggled with the idea of any visual representation of God. Mostly because of that third commandment, which tells us to make no graven images. And the church recently wrestled with this, and eventually in 787 there was an ecumenical council which affirmed the use of images in worship. And so they have been part of Christian worship since that time. Not just in huge gathered groups like this, but in little gathered groups and households. Icons are not simply artworks. They are sacred images used in prayer. In the Eastern Orthodox tradition, homes often have an icon corner, a place where the household goes to pray, and they are aids to that prayer. There is a story which Peter told once that I 
other people about the time when you and Junior were travelling in Turkey. And on a train one day they met a young man and they were discussing their faith and their lives. And this young man asked Peter, do Anglicans have icons and use them in prayer? And Peter was honest. He said, some Anglicans do, but many Anglican churches you go into, you won't see an icon. And many Anglicans probably don't know very much about icons at all. And apparently this young man's jaw dropped in horror. How then do they get in touch with the Holy Spirit? He said. I love that story because it tells us how deeply icons are part of the devotional life of a particular branch of our Christian family. Just as the Celtic tradition speaks about thin places where the distance between here and heaven is less than tissue thin, so icons are a thin space, a fragile place where God breaks through to meet us in the eternal present. To gaze on an icon can enable us to be present to the divine who is present to us without the need for any words. The Christ or the holy person in the image or the people that are in the image are the channel for that divine light which comes to meet us and to love us. So I brought you this icon today, the icon of the, the beloved disciple. Well, I like to call it the icon of the beloved companion. Because, in fact, it's not just John resting on Jesus' breast. It is Jesus resting with John. And there is this companionship that is held in this icon. The wonder and the intimacy and the mystery of that relationship. I guess it's a depiction of the Last Supper because in his hand Jesus is holding a piece of bread. And as I talked about on Wednesday at our Hakari Tapu service, there's a kind of a one of the layers of this image is that friendship can be intimate and close and loving, and it can also involve betrayal. Because Peter had just said to John, lean close to Jesus and ask him who it is that's going to betray him. And Jesus said, the one with whom I'll share this bread. The thing about close relationship is that it's risky. We risk ourselves with one another when we really trust and love. And God does this risking with us. God comes through the fragile spaces in our lives and meets us. And it's a risk. It's a risk for us and it's a risk for God. But God wants to trust us and wants to love us. And so as well as this icon being at one level, the depiction of the conversation between the beloved disciple and the beloved companion. It's also an icon of the conversation that Jesus has with us. That conversation of connection and relationship. Ron Rollheiser writes, the beloved disciple is any person, man, woman or child, who is intimate enough with Jesus so as to be attuned to the heartbeat of God. And who then sees the world from that place of intimacy and prays from that place of intimacy and sets off in love to seek the risen Lord in 
grasp the meaning of the empty tomb. It's a mystery and it's an urging. There's a, a, say, a Russian saying, Oh, that we might bow before one another as we bow before an icon. If we yearn to have that intimate presence with an icon, with the presence of God through being in front of an icon and simply absorbing the presence, being loved and loving, oh, that we might transfer that discipline to the way we encounter one another bowing in reverence before one another, receiving the presence of God through one another, loving and being loved. Ron Rollheiser also poses this question, and maybe it's a good question to be asking on a wedding anniversary. When we fall in love, how much is genuine love, how much is it genuine love for another, and how much is it an illusion within which we are mostly loving ourselves. Are we falling in love with the idea of falling in love? Or when we come to prayer, are we falling in love with the idea of what prayer is doing for us? Or falling in love with how working for justice makes us feel? Rendering the person or God or the actions that we seek to do to bring justice is the secondary thing, but the primary thing being about what, how it makes us feel. He then offers thoughts of another chap, Stephen Levine, in response to this question. He says, the true experience of love arises when we surrender our separateness into the universal. It's a feeling of unity. It's not an emotion. It is a state of being. And so, if this love is truly present in the relationship, it's not so much that two are being made one, so much as the one being manifested in the two. In this view, authentic love is not so much something we feel as something we are. In our gospel today, Jesus said to his friends, I no longer call you servants, but friends. Now the language of serving and servitude has dominated Christian tradition, and we do need to be reminded, just as Jesus reminded his disciples a little earlier in the gospel, by washing their feet, that they needed to be ready for that lowly, all-embracing love that is willing to get dirty, willing to take risks, willing to even make a fool of ourselves. But, perhaps the reframing that Jesus does in today's Gospel is useful for us and deserves more reflection. Could we even say that not only does Jesus cease calling us servants and begin to call us friends, but that God doesn't want slaves. God wants companions. To think about it like this might encourage a different model of spirituality, a deeper commitment to one another, a deeper commitment to God, a closer relationship. Of course, friendship also means letting the other be 
and acknowledging the otherness of the other, that it's integrity and its sacredness. And all of that is much harder work than simply being a servant and doing what we're told. So Jesus invites us into this kind of relationship with those dearest and nearest to us, but also with others in the circles outward, rippling out, and with God, with the divine compassion itself. Jesus reminds his friends that he has chosen them. He sees them in all of themselves. He hears them in their frailty and in their giftedness. And he chooses them. And he chooses to be all that he is for them. And so we are reminded every time we gather of that love. Christ calling us and choosing us and giving himself for us. We are God's chosen friends. But we're not the only chosen ones. All are chosen and beloved by God. Just as we were reminded in the first reading that celebrated for us, Peter and his friends who came to this centurion, they were astounded. Astounded that the Holy Spirit might come upon even Gentiles. For us to come to God in prayer and be present to the one who comes to us in our fragile spaces, enlivens us and enables us to see the Spirit come to us, even in the most unexpected people and the most unexpected places. We are God's chosen friends, and that relationship which we are given brings us both responsibility and resourcing. We are to bear fruit, and we are assured that we are listened to and loved. Jesus promises that our prayer will be answered, and the answer to all prayer is fulfillment of the relationship in love. We are seen and loved as we are. We are held close to God in love, able to hear the beat of God's heart, the pulse of the divine compassion. And the love we receive and witness spurs us on to embody it in our living. Peter and Julia chose one another, and 51 years ago here declared that choice and that commitment that they might be manifested as two in partnership with God. And today we rejoice with them and give thanks for 51 years and more <clears throat> of a relationship which I trust has brought them much resourcing and much responsibility. We give thanks that God has been their partner in this great venture and that today we can pray with them and bless them on their way for more intimacy with one another and with the divine compassion and the world that God loves so much. So I invite you to pray with me the collect again. And as we think about the way that God comes to us, that God promises to come to all, that God chooses each one and holds them close, like John being held by Jesus, that we might hear the heartbeat of God and be sent out by that divine compassion 
to be signs of that love in the world. So let's pray.